I'm going to introduce to you um, my friend Greg Pampel. I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't mention that guy's camp out is coming up real soon too, and those are also in the foyer, and I'm looking forward to that because I like a camp out, so I'm going to be there. So don't forget that, guys, not gals. Um, in 1993, when I was a second-year campus pastor at Louisiana Tech University, I found out about something called freshman orientation that I'd never gone to as a student. <laughs> so I'm in my mid-20s, but found out that as a student organization and as the director of a student organization, a campus pastor, that I could go to freshman orientation. And they had a special place where you could present student ministry ideas and invite people if they wanted to come. So that was kind of a breakout in that, in that time that those students were there. And I went and I met two students. First, two students I ever met as a campus pastor that were incoming freshmen and they were coming that fall, and one of them was Greg Pempel. And um, Greg and I went on to develop an incredible relationship. He became a huge part of our student ministry there. And ultimately, he and his wife Angie came on staff. And then when we moved here in 1999, they became the lead pastors at Louisiana Tech University. And so to say that we have history would be an incredible understatement. Um, And he's a friend and a ministry partner. When I started going to South Africa and Southern Africa in 2004... Uh, we needed to recruit student ministry partners to cover the ministries that God was going to raise up and plant there. And the first one was uh, the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Peter Maritzburg. Uh, you guys have, not all of you certainly, uh, but those of you who have been around for more than a year have met Glenn Cook, who passed through here. He's the campus pastor at UKZN. Spent several months with you guys, but Greg and Angie and the Chi Alpha from Louisiana Tech had covered Chi Alpha, and still do, actually. UKZN. Greg and Angie have heard a call from God uh, to move their family, which I'll let him tell you a bit about. They're also amazing. Um, to Cape Town uh, by way of Mozambique. They'll be spending some time, I didn't say that, Swaziland. <laughs> Swaziland. They're working with an organization called Samaritan's Cup. They have some information actually on a table in the foyer. I'd really encourage you at the end of this uh, time together to please check that out. If God speaks to you about a newsletter, you should sign up for that. Is there an opportunity for them to do that there? Uh, whenever I do newsletter sign-ups, when I've traveled as a missionary, I would always say there, uh, isn't, there's no financial obligation for getting a newsletter. would love for you to have it, love for you to pray, love for you to be aware if God speaks to you to that effect. And as leadership and dwelling place, we want you to sow into whatever it is that God calls you to. Uh, we're about pooling and releasing resource. Uh, we ain't trying to hold on to it. We know God's faithful to us. Um, but I would always say there's no financial obligation. We sincerely hope for real partners, people who pray and people who will even go, which we're already doing. So Pam's going to be able to host and facilitate a lot of our teams and uh, team members that will spend some time there. So it's going to be great to have a friend that side uh, from this side. But anyway, no financial obligation and also no free Gensu knives. But uh but love to pass that info on to you. If you want it, we'll receive an offering for them at the end of our time today before you go home and just bless them in that. But um, my friend, Greg Pempel. Thanks, Ryan. Good morning. It's great to be here this morning. Um, I would just like to add to that. There is a free Gins- uh, Ginsu knife if you decide to support us monthly and call that 1-800 number that comes on late at night. So. It's great to be here this morning. Um, 
It is a privilege to be here. It's kind of funny, over the last several years, uh, I've actually seen and been able to visit with Ron more in Africa than I have in Virginia. So <laughs> it's pretty interesting. We always run into each other in Africa, so it's a great place to run into people. But I want to get started this morning just by introducing my family. I think I have a picture. Uh, I'm going to talk a lot about my family. They'll be here in the second service, but they're not here uh, this early. My wife and I have three kids, hence the reason they're not here this early. Um, My kids are uh, five, eight, and nine. Angelica's five, Nicholas is eight, and Julia is nine. My wife's name is Angie. Uh, And I love my family to death. I could stand up here this morning and just talk about my family and not preach about anything. And maybe you and I both would appreciate that more, but that's not what God called me to do. Um, So um, I'm going to start by talking about my family because I believe that my family and who I am and who God's calling us to be is a huge part of what I want to share with you this morning. Um, my family is, a, is an interesting family. Again, if, if you've been here uh, for a while, my wife and I have been able to visit you guys. It's always great to come. It kind of feels like home. We've had a connection here at Dwelling Place for quite a while. Um, but you've probably heard Ron say, I know when we've been here before, he shared a little bit about my children. All three of my children are adopted. And uh, it's a pretty interesting story, and I don't have a lot of time to share the whole stories this morning, but I want to tell you a little bit about that, not to pat on our back for for adopting kids. It's been a huge blessing to my wife and I, Um, but really just to share the point that God is in control, and sometimes uh, everything's going to be all right. You know, sometimes there are mountains that we face. There are struggles that we face in life, and sometimes they're hard to overcome. But I believe the word of the Lord this morning is true, that everything's going to be all right. There's a scripture in Romans 8, 28, and it says this. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And I think the word of the Lord this morning is that, that. Man, as I look back over the last several years in my life, sometimes when I face mountains and I face struggles and I look at my family, I see Romans 8 right there. Even when I didn't know what God was predestining for my life, even even when I didn't know, and I'm not going to get into some predestination doctrines, that's not what God called me to do this morning. Um, I don't have it all figured out, so I wouldn't by any means try to tell anybody else what it's about. But what I'm saying is that God has a plan for your life. And way back when, when I didn't know what God was doing because my wife and I couldn't have children and we all throw out questions when we face tough things in life. We always want to ask the why questions. And all through that and all through really my my adult life, I've always, uh, every time I ask God a why question, you know what answer I get is, do you really trust me? I never really get an answer to my why question. (laughs) Has anybody else noticed that or experienced that? This scripture, I believe, answers the why question. Because God has a much bigger plan than we could ever imagine or understand or dream about. And I look back uh, almost, almost nine years ago now, over eight years ago, when we first adopted Nicholas. Uh, Nicholas was the first kid that we adopted, even though he's the middle child. I know we did him wrong. He was the first and the only boy, and we stuck him right in the middle of two girls. But that was God's plan. 
But we went and uh, we, again, my wife and I, we were trying to have children. We had been involved in ministry, a lot of things going on, and we weren't able to have kids. Uh, that Again, it's a long story, but God just really spoke to us in, a, in an amazing way. Every major thing that has happened in our lives, God has spoken to us in a real amazing way. Uh, when we were called into campus ministry, we, as Ron said, we were... Uh, students at Louisiana Tech with, with Ron and Karen there. We were involved in the ministry. To say we were heavily involved would be an understatement. I'm really glad we graduated. Um, it was a great time in our life. But, you know, as, as involved as we were uh, as students, we never even really considered being Chi Alpha pastors. It wasn't even, I don't know why really, but it just wasn't anything we ever considered. We were going to university to get a degree. And we were decided that when we got our degree, we were going to actually use our degree. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know that's a crazy thought, but that's what we really thought would happen. And so I have a degree in marketing. My wife has a degree in art. We had plans to move back to my hometown of Baton Rouge, where I'm from. Uh, I grew up in church there. We had plans to go on staff there at the church and volunteer. Uh, yeah, we were going to do the nice thing. Hey, we'll work here and we, you won't even have to pay us because we have college degrees and we can get a job. And that was our thoughts. Yeah, that's a good plan, right? And, and so we were making plans to do that. My wife and I got married uh, when we were in college. We've been married for 16 years now. Uh, and if I wouldn't have given away the fact that we got married in college, I would follow up that we've been married 16 years by saying that we got married when we were 14. But I kind of gave that away. Um, but we did, and we, we were making plans. We were making plans, and we were making good plans to do what we thought was good and not only good, but we thought was godly. And some of you here today, I believe that you're doing good things and sometimes you're even doing godly things. But you know what God spoke to me in that whole transition is that sometimes our good and our godly plans aren't really God's plans. And it was a hard lesson for me because sometimes we want to make our own plans and we want to stick a little God in it. You know, and say, well, look, it's good and it's godly. But if we don't follow God's plans, then we're missing out. And so every every major thing, every major transition in our lives, God spoke in a, in a miraculous way. We were making plans to go get a job, to, to move to Baton Rouge. And um, again, long story short, I went with Ron to a youth camp to promote Chi Alpha. We were trying to raise money to buy a Chi Alpha house. And there was this very, very um, well-known pastor of a large church in Louisiana who actually graduated from Louisiana Tech University, played a major part in, uh, in Chi Alpha as a student there many years ago. And so we just had these expectations that this guy really had the ability as a pastor to say, we're just going to buy that Chi Alpha house for you. And we had placed a lot of hope and a lot of trust in that guy, a lot of expectation. And we went to the youth camp. And, and I, I'm sure Ron had even more expectation as I did because he really carried the responsibility at that point. I was just a student going along for the ride. And we sat with this pastor and we asked him for support to help us purchase the Kava house. And pretty much he said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> And we were devastated. I remember with the rest of the day, we, it was Ron and myself and John Mark, a friend of ours, and we just kind of split ways. We didn't even hang out together the rest of the day. We all just went and, and moped somewhere alone, very depressed. And uh, we were driving back to Ruston that night. That was like a two-hour drive in the middle of nowhere, driving through the forest in Louisiana, in the Kasachi Forest, and God spoke to me. 
I had actually driven down by myself, so I was following Ron and John Mark back to Ruston at that point. God spoke to me, and if you hear anything in the middle of the Kasachi Forest, it has to be God because there's nothing else there. And I'm driving along, and God just begins to speak to me. He says, Greg, um, again, this scripture, Romans 8, 28. There are plans that I have for you that I have determined for you that you don't yet know. And I'm asking the why questions again. God, why did you do this? You know that pastor, he could just pay for the coffee house. You know our hearts. We just want to see students come to know Jesus. Lord, we're pure. Everything we desire is so that the kingdom will grow. We have good intentions. It's not selfish motives. God, why, 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 why? And I'm like arguing with God and fussing at God, right? And God says, Greg, all these things happen for a purpose. The reason that these things happened is because I'm calling you to do full-time ministry. And I was like, huh, well, thanks, God. This is a great way to start. <laughs> I want you to do Chi Alpha. This, I mean, God's literally almost the most audible voice I've ever heard. I want you to do Chi Alpha full-time, but I needed you to know that you can't put your trust in your hope in people. If you trust in people, they will all let, always let you down. The only one that will ever provide for you will be me. And I'm like, oh, I'm blown away. I literally, I start like bawling. I can't even drive. I'm honking at Ron and John Mark. And we pull over on the side of the road. And I'm like, oh, I'm telling them what God was speaking to me. And Ron's like, you're crazy, man. You need to get back in your car. This was the most horrible day in our life. What are you talking about? And so, and I, it didn't matter. I knew God was speaking. Again, I was in Kasachi Forest. I knew it. And so I'm driving home and I'm like, I can't believe that our God is big enough that he would ordain all these things to happen so that I could see through a clear picture that my hope and my expectations was in that man and not in God. And he did all that, all of that, that one day, all of those things so that he could call me to do full time ministry. What an amazing God. What an amazing God that would take the time to do exactly what it would take. For me to know that from that point forward, literally, I have been able to trust God and say, God will always provide what I need because of that day. My trust will never be in people. It will always be in him. And I get home and I wake up my wife and I say, Angie, I need to tell you something, which was a bad idea. <laughs> it was the middle of the night. Right. But I just had to. And I said, you know, I need to tell you, God spoke to me on the way home tonight and we can talk about it tomorrow yeah, right. But I just I needed to let you know that we're, we're going to do Chi Alpha full time. God's calling us to do Chi Alpha full time. And she rolled over in the bed and she said her eyes, you know, she's trying to wake up. Yeah, I already knew that. Go back to sleep. I said, what? What are you talking about? And she literally rolled her straight back over like she never missed a lick, like didn't even phase her, which is crazy for my wife. And so the next day, you know, we're we talking about it and she says the story and she talks about about two or three weeks earlier, she was walking on campus and praying. And uh, and she said, God specifically just spoke to her out of the blue. Wasn't like uh, a, a real special time. You know, it wasn't a great atmosphere, you know, like we had in worship this morning where God, you know, is, you're just sensitive. She said she was just walking and talking and God said, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be prepared to do full-time ministry in Chi Alpha. But most importantly, I need you to not talk to Greg about it because I have something special that I need to tell him. 
How amazing is our God? How amazing. The biggest miracle in that is that she went the three weeks without telling me anything. (laughs) That is an amazing God. And so I tell that story because, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't have honestly, I don't have a lot of just amazing encounters with God. I know God's walking beside me every single day and I know him. I trust him. I relate with him. But there's only a few times in my life that God has just been that specific and that big. I mean, he's big all the time. But do you know what I'm talking about? Like real in your life that he speaks to you in a very, very powerful way. That was one of those times. Big transition in our life. The second time was when we adopted kids. We weren't able to have kids. We had tried and tried. It was like the big elephant in the room. Every time we went home to family, nobody wanted to talk about kids. You know, it was like when the kids came in the room, the cousins or the nieces and nephews, they were like shooing them out. You know, it's like, come on, guys. It's okay. (laughs) But that's how it was. It was real uncomfortable. We were trying to have kids and there was pressure from the grandparents. We want to have grandkids, you know, and we were feeling that pressure and And finally, we just got to the point we had talked about adoption even before we had started trying to have kids. But it kind of fell to the back burner and we tried and tried and we were going through all this. And one day we were driving down to Angie's parents' house. And on the way down, God had just the week before that, God had just been really kind of stirred in my heart again about adopting. And I didn't want to say anything, you know, again, it's like the big elephant. There's a lot of emotions going on. I don't know. Probably a lot of you have at least known someone going through those challenges. And so I didn't want to bring it up to Angie because I didn't really want to start the emotional waterfall. And um, and so we're driving and it's kind of quiet in the car. And Angie says, you know what? I just really been praying. And I think we need to really consider maybe adopting. And I was like, oh. And so, I mean, my heart's kind of beating like, really, you know, because I knew God had been speaking to me about that. And um, and so I responded to that uh, by saying, yeah, I feel like God's been kind of telling me that. Um, And I feel like God's really been speaking to me about adopting from Eastern Europe. And she was like she almost like fell out of her seat. She said, that's exactly what God said to me. I don't know why, but. I feel like we need to adopt from Eastern Europe. So we get home to our parents' house, and again, it's like the white elephant. Nobody's talking about it. And uh, we get to the house, and our mom comes to her almost immediately, like after we unload the car and everything. And she says, I don't know, I don't know if I should say anything. And, I, 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 and she's fumbling all over her words, and she says, I have this article, and our pastor's wife, you know, um, just adopted from Eastern Europe. Okay, God. <laughs> think we'll adopt from Eastern Europe. And so we started looking into that. And and what an amazing story. What an amazing story. We began the process of adoption. We find out later Nicholas was actually almost born on the same exact day that we drove down to Angie's parents' house. How amazing is our God? You know, he's in control. I love my kids. Uh, so Nicholas, we adopted Nicholas almost nine years ago. We got home from Russia, the second trip with him in our hands on my birthday. It was pretty cool. What an amazing story. What amazing revelation to me of how God adopts us as his own. You know what? We have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. We have no hope. Just like those poor orphans. 
Just like Nicholas, just like Julia, just like Angelica, there's no hope for them. You can read all the statistics. You've heard all the statistics. Um, Really, their life is, there's no hope. There's no hope for good for them. They're going to be alcoholics, most likely. They're going to die. They're going to have drugs in in their lifestyle. They're going to live horrible lifestyles. They're hopeless. And we are the same without Jesus Christ. And you know what? What Jesus done for us, what Jesus has done, and what He continually does for us, we don't deserve. We don't earn it. Just like those poor kids in the orphanage, they don't, you know what? They don't even get to request that we come and get them. We have the opportunity to actually cry out to God and say, God, please save me and rescue me. But those kids, they don't even have that. They're hopeless. But Jesus comes in and he brings hope to a hopeless situation. And he calls people like you and I to go and to rescue people. Now, I'm saying that in a literal and a very spiritual way. He calls you and I to go out here and to rescue people. Orphans without a father. When we went and adopted Nicholas, I had no idea that nine years later, God was going to be calling me to go to Africa and rescue orphans. But you know what? He has a plan for us. And the things that he's calling you to do today, you might not know why. You might be asking God, why, why, why? But he has a plan for you. And he wants to know, are you just going to trust him that everything's going to be all right? Every little thing's going to be all right. I love my family. I love kids, uh, especially my kids. Um, sometimes I don't like other people's kids too much, mostly just because I can't spank them, you know. Um, no, I really do like kids, but I really love my kids, and they're a lot of fun. You, know, you might meet my kids whenever you leave here in transition. If they're here, uh, you'll probably notice them. They're just those kind of kids. Um, but we have a lot of fun around our house, right? And um, there's one thing about, there's a few things about kids that I really enjoy. Um, kids, they're like, how can I explain this? They just, they're, they don't have any inhibitions, right? They're just like, they're all about fun. They're only really, and this is a sad part about kids, but most of the time they're only interested in themselves. We had a good long talk with Nicholas last night because uh, they, they were taken to the movies and he kind of misunderstands sometimes the distinction between kid and adult. And so there's a loss of respect there that we're trying to learn right now. Um, but kids, they just, they don't care, you know? They, and, and in some ways that's very good. Right. I mean, they don't care. Another thing about kids is they don't have any limits. Right. They definitely don't have volume limits. Right. Um, But also a lot of kids, there's nothing that they can't do. Right. If you can remember being a kid, man, you thought you could do anything. That's why the whole superhero thing is such a great. it, It just hooks kids hook, line and sinker. Right. It's like, man, we can do anything. And so it's just proof that in America, we're just a bunch of big kids now because they're superheroes in all the movies now. Right. It's just kids grown up now. But kids, they don't have any any inhibitions. They can they can do anything. Um, my eight year old son, Nicholas, man, he can invent anything. We were like. I forget where we were, but we were walking through a store or something the other day, and his mind, boy, you can see when Nicholas, he's, he's got it going. And uh, we were talking about the military or something, and, and he was like, Daddy, I'm, man, when I get big, I'm going to invent this, this jacket that's like bulletproof. <laughs> and I was like, 
Sorry, buddy, that's already been invented. <laughs> he was like, oh, man. I mean, he was bummed out. He had this idea that he was going to revolutionize things, you know, and he had it all figured out. Nothing. I mean, he can invent anything in his head. He swears that he's going to be a Lego engineer whenever he grows older. I mean, that's what he's going to do. And, and there's just no limit to what he thinks he's going to invent the Iron Man costume for real. Um, and I mean, he's just got it all figured out. That's Nicholas. But there's another thing about kids that I really enjoy watching kids is that any point a kid can break out and dance, right? Has anybody else notice that? I mean, my, my little girl, Angelica, she can just, she can break it down. She's got a jig in her heart. You know what I'm saying? It's just there. No matter what. I mean, she'll be in the bathroom and I'm at the restaurant, you know, I'm standing outside the door waiting on her. And I can hear her in there. She's singing. While she's in the bathroom, I'm like, Angelica, hurry up. And she comes out the door when she's like jigging out the door, you know. And I'm like, man, kids, they just can dance at any point in time. They can just break it down. You walk in the living room, they're watching cartoons, they're like dancing. Uh, Any opportunity, they're going to dance. And... I think it's cool, you know, I hadn't been in many churches that's actually got a dance floor up on the front of the church. That's pretty nice. But, you know, for the most part, I'm not going to be talking about this kind of dancing uh, this morning. But I think in our lives, just as, as adults, a lot of times, somewhere along the way, we lose the dance. Right? We lose the ability. We lose the dance, you know. And what it really is about... Um, when we get older and, and, and things start transitioning our lives and we think we're important, we think we're valuable, we think we're too good for that, when do we lose it? When in our lives do we actually lose the dance? You know what it is? I think we lose our sense of awe and wonder. We lose our sense of awe and wonder and, and, and our uh, understanding that anything is possible. That as long as our everything's okay, everything's going to be okay as long as Daddy's around, right? As long as He's around and He cares and He loves for us. The child, the mind of a child, the heart of a child. When do we lose that ability? At what point in our life do we lose that ability? I can remember again whenever I was at, at Louisiana Tech, I didn't really want to be a campus pastor. That wasn't really the desire I had for my heart. Uh, whenever I went to school, I had a really messed up desire because I really wanted to be a basketball player, but I was a really short white guy that couldn't jump or run fast, okay? But in my mind, that's what I wanted to be. And quickly that transitioned because I realized it wasn't going to happen. And so I decided, well, if I can't be that, because, you know, when you're, again, when you're a kid, you can be anything. You can be anything that your heart desires, And so I get to college and I want to be a basketball player. I realize that's not going to happen. So then it transitions into, well, I'll get a marketing degree and then I can just design basketball stuff, right? I mean, it's kind of close. But then that kind of faded away. And then I decided, well, I'll just be a businessman like everybody else, right? And then luckily, before I slid too far down the slope, God came in and said, no, I want you to actually do something with your life. (laughs) Why don't you go into campus ministry? But isn't that how our lives work so often? Is that we have big plans and we have big dreams and we have God stuff in our heart. And before long, we just get mixed up in the mundane and the regular and our dreams and our hopes and the things that aren't really possible by our strength. The ideas that we could do anything fade away. And somewhere along the way, we lose the ability to dance. 
There's a song, I don't know if any of you listen to country music. Uh, my wife despises country music. All right. Um, I am from Louisiana, so it's hard to get away from country music. But uh, there's actually a song. It's written by a lady, uh, a young lady named Tia Sillers. Um, and this is taken out of an article. I find it very interesting. So kind of bear with me. I'm going to read it real quick. It says Sillers explained that at this time she was going through a painful divorce in her life uh, when she wrote this song. She said, I had just broken up with someone going through a brutal divorce. I needed to get away. So I went to a beach on the Florida Gulf Coast. And sitting on that beach and reflecting about the breakup, I felt so small and so inconsequential. Because everything was so big. But out of this difficult time, the inspiration to write this song. And as I was leaving the beach, she says, I remember thinking that things weren't really so bad. That everything was going to be all right. And that I would make it through it. And then... That's when I came up with the line that says, I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. So this song she wrote, maybe some of you heard it, it says this. It says, I hope you never lose your sense of wonder. You get your feel to eat, but always keep that hunger. May you never take one single breath for granted. God forbid love ever leave you empty handed. I hope you still feel small when you stand by the ocean. Whenever one door closes, I I hope one more opens. Promise me you'll give faith a fighting chance. And when when you get the choice to sit it out or dance, I hope you dance. I hope you never fear those mountains in the distance. Never settle for the path of least resistance. Living might mean taking chances, but they're worth taking. Love might be a mistake, but it's worth making. Don't let your angry heart leave you bitter. When you come close to selling out, reconsider. Give the heavens above more than just a passing glance. And when you get the choice to sit it out or dance, I hope you'll dance. Ron talks a lot about his sister. I'm sure you've heard stories. And uh, when I was preparing for this, I looked up on Facebook a note that he wrote. And it says this, let's talk about Mary Jane, and it says, Who is dis- Who's disabled? On January the 12th, 1961, God graced the world and our family with a gift. Her name was Mary Jane, or MJB, as she liked to say. It didn't take long to realize that she wasn't quite like other babies her age. She didn't do some things as well or as soon. The doctor reported that she had a condition known as Down syndrome. Downs is a genetic abnorm- abnormality that causes certain physical and developmental differences from non-Downs people. Some of those differences seem to be disadvantageous, and we call them disabilities. However, if you knew Mary Jane, you would have realized that she was also very advanced in certain other areas because of her disability. Things that many of us have to learn seem to come naturally to her. In fact, she seemed advanced in the very things that mattered the most. Jesus said the most important commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. These things she did with excellence and ease. She was the essence of joy, a hug and smile looking for a place to happen. Forgiveness was automatic, but hardly necessary since she rarely ever took offense. She chose compassion even when it came with cost and often needed by the very people who have who may have treated her poorly. The very things we often find most difficult to do, the most important things, she did better than anyone I have ever known. She believed in Jesus and with an honest and unrelenting faith and fervor. Trusting God was like breathing to her. 
So tell me then, who is really disabled? You know, the funny thing is, is that I've known several Downs people. And the church that we're going to get plugged into in Baton Rouge temporarily before we move to Africa, they actually have a ministry specifically for special needs people. And I was talking with someone at that church and we were talking about um, special needs people and questions. And, you know, the thing about Mary Jane and, and others like her is there's the sense of innocence. They don't ever lose the awe and the innocence. And so the question really is, I wonder who's losing in this thing, in this disability. There was a question asked to one of the pastors on staff at, at the Healing Place Church there in Baton Rouge. And uh, someone asked the lady, uh, if you had a chance, would you give your, your Down's daughter a normal pill? Which is a very inappropriate question, obviously. And she said, no, I might give my 16-year-old a normal pill. <laughs> But no, I wouldn't. I would not change anything. And you know why? Because she loves to dance. That's what she said. Because she loves to dance. She still has that sense of innocence and awe. In the Garden of Eden, you know, that's what it really was about. Adam and Eve still had that sense of awe. That innocence. They walked and they talked with Jesus and they were innocent. And the thing is, the truth is, is that sin created the loss of innocence and awe. But the gospel is the innocence restored. The gospel is the innocence restored. When the disciples were trying to keep the kids out of the way from Jesus, he told the disciples, the kingdom of God is such as this. The innocence and the awe of a child. And I believe that if he lived here today, he would say, if you want to change your community, if you want to see change in your own life, if you want to start a revolution, if you want to see change happen, you've got to have a heart of a child. You got to know that nothing is impossible. You got to know that your father's got your back. And you got to be ready to dance at any moment. When and where do we lose it? When do we get too cool to dance? When do we quit dancing? I'm going to share just real quickly the three things that I believe that robs us of the dance. The first thing is the applause. The applause. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor this morning. Would you, would you just give a round of applause right now, everybody? Go ahead. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. Now we're going to act like the Hokies just won, and we're going to give a real good round of applause. All right? Come on. Give me some shouts and some whistles and everything. All right? Yeah. All right. That feels good, don't it? That's what they're going to do every time I preach in Africa. It's going to be great. What would you do if that's what happened every time you walked into a room? Right? How, I mean, applause is good, right? How would you feel if every time that you led a Bible study or you got up BJ and did worship? You know, that's, that's what it was like. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? That'd be good. What if every time you got up, Ron, that's the applause you got? Be awesome, right? Applause is good, right? It's better than booze, right? I mean, booze like boo and other kind of booze too. But it's better, right? It's good. But the truth is, is that there's a dangerous element in applause. 
there's a dangerous element. Proverbs 27:21 says this. It says, fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but a person is tested by being praised. There's something about the praise. There's something about the applause. People are tested by their praise. The first time I remember the first time I heard the applause, uh, it was it was actually just after Ron and Karen had moved away to Virginia and Angie and I had taken over as campus pastors at Louisiana Tech. We were really young. Uh, We didn't know what we were doing. It was crazy. It was wild. And we went to a conference called SALT and we brought some students there and we had a a pretty large group, uh, especially considering we were like 24 years old. And I mean, we had no clue what we were doing, but we still had the leftovers from Ron and Karen. It was great. And uh, we took all those students to SALT. And I remember we were at that conference and it was after the meeting and we were all gathered together praying and God spoke through me and I was able to speak into someone's life directly almost prophetically which I had never done before and I remember and it was amazing and and afterwards people come up that was great Greg that was awesome and it was like wow we see hope in our future you know and and the applause I remember it it was great there was a sense of awe there and the, the bad thing is is that over time what we tend to do is we tend to perfect Right. We, we, we tend to perfect our craft. And especially as pastors, we we read the books, right? The Andy Stanley's of how to be a great teacher and leader and and how to walk in the prophetic. Right. And and we have prophetic conferences that teach us how to do that. And we perfect our craft and all those things are good. But somewhere in that, what happens is that we get overtaken by the applause. And instead of pursuing the true heart of God, sometimes we pursue the applause. We just want to get better for better's sake. We begin to hear the applause and and we begin to hear things like, man, you're reading my mail, Greg. That was just for me. What you spoke was just for me. And over time, you start to believe them. And you take the applause for yourself. And you lose the sense of awe that God would use me. You forget who you were and who He is. Applause is addicting. The most dangerous applause is when we resent the applause of someone else. The applause that someone else gets. There's an eagle song that says, I'll never forget you until someone new comes along. Then someone else will be great. Someone else will come along and do something good and then they'll get the applause and then you'll resent them getting the applause and you lose your sense of awe and innocence and then you're not dancing anymore. The second thing that causes us to lose the dance is the grind. The grind. Man, the grind of everyday life. 2 Corinthians 4.8 says, Pressed on every side by trouble, but not broken, perplexed but we don't give up and quit. Right? We're pressed on every side. I I pastored the Kyle group. We started out dancing. It got tough because there was transition. At the beginning, we had the awe and the wonder, and then you find in your third or fourth year of setting up and tearing down chairs, carrying stuff up the stairs to the student center, setting up sound equipment, tearing it down, bringing it back home. All those things, the grind, and, and people are excited about it at first, but before long, you don't have any help, and you're doing it yourself. And I remember 14 years ago when we started out strong, we were excited. 
We were new. Things were fresh. We had a great team of students, like I said, left over that transitioned with us. The excitement and the newness wore off and the passion dwindled. And even the lure of new programs and new cool names for things couldn't keep people around. Then I was guilted into keeping Free Food Friday. Great program. It was a great program. But God didn't tell me to keep Free Food Friday. That was Ron's program. And it was a good program. But I was intimidated and I was guilted into keeping it. And the old folks that were there were saying, well, Ron did it. <laughs> right? And I felt guilty for getting rid of it. And then, and then I had all kind of help at first. But again, the help dwindled and the grind and the work. And then I found out that after I was guilted into doing it, I found that I was the one cooking. I was the one raising the money for it. I was the one serving it. I was the one doing all those things and there was no help for it. And in the grind, in the grind of that, you lose the dance. And people look back and they say, man, that was the good old days. No, that was just the old days. We tried all kinds of things, but we had a lot of epic failures. The grind of it all, the grind of life sometimes takes away our sense of awe and innocence. A guy named Craig Groeschel says this, if you take too much responsibility for the decline during the pruning seasons in life, during the grind, then you'll take too much credit for increasing during the harvest. We've got to change the way we see the grind. We've got to change from just counting heads and counting rear ends in the seats to really discipling people. The truth is this, that in the grind of pastoring, sometimes we get caught up in the numbers. We get caught up in the numbers. And so we got to see that it's about making disciples. That's what the Word says in Matthew, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations. And the truth is this, that the money that you invest into the university students here, the time, the quality of time you spend discipling people, the time that you spend and the money that you spend to send your young people to Africa to do mission trips, there's no way you'll ever be able to measure or count heads for that. But it's making disciples of all nations and it's part of the grind. But sometimes if we get caught up in the counting and the grind of things and we try to contain God so much, we lose the sense of awe and innocence and we lose our dance. The third and final thing that causes us to lose our dance is our sin. Our sin. David was a world-class dancer. Right? We all know the story of when they brought the ark back in, right? And, and the word says that he was dancing like crazy. That's my rendition. Out of control. He was dancing with all of his might. He had a sense of awe and innocence. And he wasn't worried about what people think. But the truth is this, that when you dance for Christ, not everyone will like it. Right? David's, David's wife did not like it. Right? He didn't marry up like I did. She had issues with his dancing. And the truth is this, is that when you're in the groove and you're doing what God called you to do and you're listening to His voice and at any moment you believe that anything is possible and you're willing to step out and do it, when you're walking that walk, there's a lot of people that won't like it. There's a lot of people that will call you crazy. And last week I spoke a word about being weird. A lot of people will think you weird. I'm not talking about being creepy. I'm talking about being different and weird. But a lot of people will. A lot of people will say, Greg, why will you take your family? You, you went all the way over there and adopted those kids to bring them to America. Why are you going to take them to Africa now? That's just weird. It doesn't make sense. 
But if you're willing to dance, if you're willing to step out and do it, it'll be different. But there was a season that David lost his ability to dance. Psalms 32, starting in verse 1, says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sin to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. And now all my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. The last thing that will keep us from being able to dance is our sin. Our sin. The truth is that we and you especially are attempting the hardest thing on this planet, and that is to reach people for Jesus. And you do all your efforts and all your attempts and all your energy for nothing in return on this earth. You volunteer your time, you volunteer your energy for nothing in return on this. You're doing one of the hardest things. We will be miserable doing it. You will be miserable doing it if sin owns you. The strongest sin is hidden sin. Just like David said, when we confess our sin, when we take that guilt off of us, then we can do the hardest thing in the world. We can reach our world for Jesus. And and our sin won't own us and we won't be miserable. We'll be full of joy. We'll be full of excitement. We'll be full of love. And all those things that God promises us, we'll be able to dance. Jesus says in Mark, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Richard Foster says this, people who can hear the worst possible thing from the best possible people without even as much as batting an eye are the people that we need to confess to. We need to find those people. I believe we need to restore the art the ministry of confession. You need to have people in your life that you can confess to. Obviously, Jesus is, is the person that needs the confession the most, but you need someone that you can trust in that can hear the, the, the worst possible thing in your life and still encourage you and believe the best possible things for your life. So the question this morning is, are you going to hide your sin? Are you going to get beat up by the grind? Are you going to let the applause take hold of your life? Or are you going to confess? Are you going to be like David? And are you going to dance again? My life is a big dance right now. Every step along the way, it seems like the more comfortable I get, the more God calls me to break out and dance, and I'm not a dancer. So this morning, I just want to challenge you and encourage you If you're given the chance, would you please dance? Thank you. Dear Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you for this opportunity. And um, what a privilege it is to be your son. Lord, to be able to dance with you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Appreciate you, Pam. Um.
interesting thing about all those years of working with student ministry is the high belief in marketplace ministry. Really believing that it is that guy, in as much as we're kind of the um, exception almost to the rule, that the majority of our assignments and appointments will be in business or marketing or in the school or in the home. Um, but know this, that that's a great place to dance. As I said last week, Monday through Saturday holds far more storytelling potential than we could ever hope to have on Sunday. And, and in fact, a lot of the things that I've seen in you that mattered the most were the things that you did when no one was watching. I love that line, will you still be small when you stand by the ocean? Uh, that to me is, is powerful and affirming. I'll never forget the first time I saw the ocean. And I, I said this to you a couple of weeks ago from, from here during worship, that in as much as I'm so thankful that we know He is our Father, I hope that we never miss the memo that He is the Creator of everything. And so it, there's this spectacular awe that should be associated with that reality that causes us to know that God is so able as our Father, right? We ain't even got just any old dad, you know. I think I said that too that Sunday, but I said, who's your daddy? But, I mean, it, there is this thing about holy fear and awe, and, and I appreciate just that you, you shared that. The adoption story um, that you didn't have the opportunity to finish, and I won't add too much to that, but that after they had had, just, just FYI, when you meet these kids, and they are incredibly social and incredibly interactive, and that wasn't the way that they came. And maybe you, you came from a hard place too. But you can still learn to dance. I mean, I, I sat there and thought, man, i got to dance more. I don't dance enough. But Nicholas was so untouched that literally he was stiff. He was rigid. I mean, he was less than a year old and you could lean him against a couch and he wouldn't bend. Like he was, it was like a two-by-four. Seriously. He couldn't stand up yet, but you could lean him against the couch and he would... And I apologize for being entertained by that, but it was fascinating. I was like, look at this kid, is like rigid. But what happened over time was that he became one of the most interactive... I mean, he, he loves to play with. And to watch Angelica learn to sing and dance, who had been so, honestly, just brutally mistreated and abandoned. And uh, see Julia just develop into a princess. I mean, she is the quintessential princess who was once, uh, yeah, who was once Cinderella. That's uh, just powerful. And Mary Jane, uh, she would sing sitting on the toilet. <laughs> it's a true story. Even as a kid, I would walk by, what are you doing in there? Until the day she went to be with Jesus, she would sing to him on the toilet. <laughs> she always had a song to sing. Uh, we're going to pass the baskets and give you a chance to sew. And Pam and Angie will be going specifically. His name is Greg. I, Pam's a nickname. Greg Pempel. Uh, but Greg and Angie will be going to, uh, eventually to Cape Town to work with the church uh, whose pastor has been here and spoken to you. Jeff Bond was here a year ago last May. He'll be back. If you haven't had a chance to hear him, he'll be here. Um, but you can actually check out their website. I think it's tpc.co.za. 
a church that they'll be working and walking with. And uh, they'll be setting up a care point for Children's Cup, which is a ministry to kids, in the shantytown, the informal settlement that we've had an opportunity to work in from here called Masapumalele. So we're hoping next year to get to do VBS in Masapumalele. And I can tell you more about that later. You can find out more information about that there. But I would just say this. This is a great place to sow seed. So I would ask you this morning, Lord, as we sow into who you are and what you're doing in the lives of the Pampels, uh, Lord, we pray that you'd take this that we have and that you'd multiply it over and over and over, God, uh, as they travel this afternoon to D.C. to meet with other churches and pastors, that their budget would be completely raised and they could get where they're going post-haste. In Jesus' name, I'm going to give you an opportunity just in a moment to respond to this word because I do think there's a place to respond. And I love the fact that we have a dance floor. We wear this floor out. That's what cracks me up. But this isn't the only kind of dancing that Greg's talking about. And that day that he felt called to ministry was the day that I wanted to quit. And to be honest, I didn't even mean to be putting my hope in Denny. I just felt like we kind of needed to touch base with him. John Mark said the same thing you said, though later he thought he was going to buy the house. Frankly, I never thought that was going to happen. I just wanted a verbal affirmation from him, to be honest. I just wanted him to say what we were doing was good. And what he said was, if you buy that house, you're probably going to lose your wife and destroy your ministry. And I was sitting there thinking, I don't have a ministry, but I do have a wife. Uh, so I was very confused. And, uh, and I wanted to resign. Later that night, when I actually spoke, though, at church camp, and we did all eventually gather together down by a little lake and talk, and we're just going, you know, what? I mean, for me, it was just the hard part was, did I really hear God about that house? Thanks, man. Way to be automatic. I was thinking, did I hear God about that house? Am I just missing him? What the Lord said was, Denny is an amazing guy, and he's my son, and he's killing the devil. But I talk to you. He's not your covering. He's, he's not on your board. He's not authority in your life. He's a great guy. But I speak to you. And I was thinking, but God, I'm Ron from Enola. But I spoke that night about student ministry when I actually wanted to resign. I wanted to just go home. But I was supposed to be there. The thing I was there to do was that night. I came early to talk to him, which I regretted. So we had to wait all day. And I got up there to speak, and it was like getting shot out of a cannon. I mean, I've never been that good for three minutes. And I mean, the guy was the guy that was even the overseer. Remember him? He was like, Mr., you got three minutes, don't go over. But in three minutes, I, my heart for students and student ministry came out more than it ever has before since. And then he found me before I left. And he said, God said, I owe you an apology. He said, I spoke out of turn. And you were there now, not me. And if he said you need a house, then you need a house. And you go for it full speed ahead. He didn't write me a check. I don't want a check, to be honest. But he said, I've never prayed for you, but I will now. But then to be driving home, I still wanted to just drive straight from there to my mom's. I mean, go right past our home, which was two hours north, to go another four hours past that to my mom's. Just get Karen. Get in the car. We're leaving. That's what I wanted to do. And then to be coming up through there and... I mean, and John Mark was joining in on my whiny party. 
<laughs> you know, we were both up there. This is so stupid. I just quit. Meh, meh, meh. Throw the window down. I'm going to be a campus pastor. <laughs> well, great. You can have my spot. <laughs> Which I had no idea would be true in a couple of three years. Seriously. I was like, here you go, buddy. <laughs> uh, but he stood outside that window that night. And he was dancing. I was stuck in the grind. And I was looking for a little applause. That's a true story. Thanks for nailing me. Still like Fruit Food Friday, but I never said you had to do it. Lord, I pray right now you speak to our hearts. God, if perchance somewhere along the way we forgot how to dance. God, that today you'd get our feet moving fast and furious for you today. It's Jesus. Give us back our dance. Outside, out there, where life is meant to be lived, even in the middle of, as BJ said this morning, God, I still feel bothered to say it. It feels almost like a contradiction. Every little thing is going to be all right. Seriously, there's so much that's wrong, Lord. But I get what's getting said, God, that when we give it to you, we can dance in the fire. And right on through it. So I just pray this day, God, that whatever heaviness we're carrying, whatever hard thing we're walking through, maybe even the good thing, that we're not chasing after something that we could never need to have but rather, Lord, that we're chasing after you. And that in the business, uh, the boardroom, or the classroom, or the living room, or over the ocean in some crazy ministry endeavor, Lord, that whatever we're doing, wherever we're doing, what we're doing for you, Lord, that we'd still like cartoons at least a little. <laughs> but more than that, that we'd be people who know how to dance. Can you just do this for me real quick? And I'll let you go. But if, you, if we could just pray together that prayer. We could just stop for a second and we could just pray for one another. And just confess some things over each other. I think there's even some prophetic words that some of you have for the other of you. Where you're just going to pray a prayer over someone. And so I want to liberate you to move. But I, so, And then also I'm going to ask you this. If you would just say, you know, it's been harder to dance lately. I've kind of been feeling like I was spiritually, proverbially wearing kind of some lead boots. And I want to dance, but I can't get my feet off the floor. It's okay to say that. That's not a bad admission. And if that's you, please be honest today and just stand up where you are and let your friends and family come and pray for you. Could you do that? I want my dance back. I kind of lost my groove. And I want it back. Would you just stand up right now? Just stand up. And people are going to come pray for you. Thank you. Appreciate you being obedient. I just want my dance back. It's time to get jiggy with it. There you go. Go ahead, family. Go ahead, family. Whew, thank you, Jesus. Yeah, Lord. Yeah, Lord. Yeah, Lord. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Y'all just go ahead and pray. 
Maybe speak if you got something to say. Pray it, speak it, hug it, whatever it is.